Hi, welcome back to the Mom Mentality Show. My name is Austin Chadwick and co-host is Chris Lucian. And today we're definitely very excited to have Seb Rose on the show. We got some great topics lined up, including uh, the best practice fallacy, dispassionate professionalism, uh, and sustainability. And if we have some time, we'll get to some BDD stuff. Uh, before we jump to those, Seb, uh, do you mind introducing yourself uh, for our Hi. audience? Yeah, my name's Seb Rose. I'm uh, currently in Scotland. I live in Scotland. Um, it's dark. Uh, I wish I was somewhere where the sun was shining and it was warm, but and there's a storm. Um, I, I'm, I've been a software developer since 1980. Uh, in the past 15 years, I've been moving towards uh, being more of an agile practitioner, an agile coach and consultant. Um, and uh, maybe 10 years ago, I got involved with Cucumber and Behavior Driven Development. Uh, through my meeting with uh, Aslak Kausoy and Matt Wynn. Um, I am currently, what do we say? I'm currently between uh, between engagements. Um, I was I had a permanent job uh, for three or four years after Cucumber got acquired. Um, but uh, what, with the, what with the global situation, they let a lot of people go, including the whole of the Cucumber team. So um, we're all out there looking for things to do. I'm actually very busy not working in Agile or BDD or, in fact, even uh, anything to do with computers most of the time at the moment. But I'm always on the lookout for something interesting to get my teeth into. Right on, right on. Okay, cool. Thanks for that background. And uh, yeah, I'm really curious to dive into these topics. So the first one is the uh, quote-unquote best practice fallacy. Uh, yeah, what are your thoughts here? Well, uh, you know, uh, I grew up and uh, I, I grew up and worked in many organizations and listened to many speakers and read many books that said that this is best practice. Um, and, you know, I knew, I think I knew instinctively that a lot of these best practices, we tried them and they hadn't worked. And I just wasn't sure what was wrong because, you know, the people that were telling me that they were best practice, well, you know, they weren't trying to yank my chain um they had used these practices and it had worked for them and I, and i was i was confused why were best practices not always best and you know along the way i became a consultant and what's the consultant's favorite uh, statement best practice no yeah, it i was it depends right yes. exactly <laughs> and, and of course it depends on the consultant then. stuff in there um and in fact it was only when I started um, listening to, I guess it was uh, Dave Snowden talking about Kneven and complexity, that I realized what was what what had been, what I'd been missing all these years, which is that best practices are fine for. Uh, I mean, some I can't remember if he calls it simple domain anymore, but you know, for simple and complicated areas, best practices can be good. But unfortunately, most of the challenges that we face are not simple or complicated they're complex um especially when you're talking about um, agile teams organizations being mean to their teams um all these sorts of things these are to do with socio-technical systems and these are complex and in complex systems you just best practices don't work or at least they may work today but that doesn't mean they'll work tomorrow um and the thing that didn't work yesterday might be just what you need um next week so I think we there's no, you know, and this seems to be quite a broadly understood uh, thing among people I often speak to, and yet the words best practice still creep into conference talks and blog posts and books and pundits talking. And so, you know, I think it's, I, I don't take it upon myself, but when I spot it, I do generally go, is it really a best practice or is it just a good practice for the context that you used it in? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I recently heard it. It. I think we we're in a, a conversation, and I, I think one of us asked the why question, and the answer was, "Well, it's because it's best practice." And uh, I don't think the person meant, you know, negative intent or anything. But it's almost like it's it's. Uh, my kids are studying a fallacy book, and so they're really good at pointing out uh, red herrings. It's where you don't answer the question. And so it's almost like an answer, but not an answer. Right. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so yeah. um, like, well, you know, why in this context is this the thing to do or something? Right. Um, and 
Yeah. What's your general response when people say it, I guess, as like a, an answer to the question? <laughs> so, I mean, I think probably I'm I'm probably pretty obnoxious. I go, you know, I'm not sure that it's a best practice. I think it might be a good practice, but I've also seen that, um, that backfire a number of times because generally, yeah, because generally it does, you know, these best, best practices do backfire. I mean, what really sucks is that a lot of the things that get sold as best practice are actually bad practices, you know, so they're not, it's not even, they're not even contextually good. They're just, please don't do this. We, we learned not to do this years ago. Waterfall is best practice for software development. Is it? <laughs> that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Yeah. So the distinction between best and good, I think, uh, I guess best it entails, it'll work in any situation, like a universal solution or something, right? Where like, it kind of reminds me, this is kind of geeky, but like in, ethics and philosophy they distinguish between you ought to do something versus it's good to do something so it's like it's good to be a doctor but everyone doesn't have to be a doctor you don't yeah. ought to be a doctor you know kind of thing and so um yeah so I, I think you're right like if you, so if you were to replace it with hey here's a good practice that seems to have less uh onus on that it shall be done now uh -huh. <laughs> or something yeah. right yeah Actually, he hearing you say "good practice" now, I even wonder if that whether that's a good word. And what, what I'm what I'm thinking of now is, um, so, which sort of harps forward towards the sustainability thing that we talk we're going to talk about later. But um, uh, that people when they would think about um, what technologies were useful for different cultures and in different parts of the world, and they came up with a concept of appropriate technology, mm. right? So um a technology may be really it may be um neutral or beneficial morally but it may be inappropriate in one setting whereas it's appropriate in another um so maybe what I'm, what i'm really thinking about is appropriate practices mm. yeah yeah I tend, I tend to focus on habits too and the habits and practices could be like kind of a similar thing but i think you know saying it's a good habit to have versus, uh, you know, it's best practice to do this. Um, I, I think it has some subtle subtlety to it as well. Yeah, yeah there's nuance there. I, I guess the, the worst thing about the term best practice is that it's it ba basically says, do not argue with me here. Mm -hmm. uh, I am I am not talking personally. I am talking with the whole weight of the industry behind me. And you can't possibly argue this is best practice. I've been doing this for two decades. You can't do any better. And that's that's yeah. just a, a nasty way to run a team or even engage with an individual. Yeah, and I, and I guess that's, I think that's that's a key point is that there are ex, you know explicit and subtle ways to kind of uh, stop the flow of brainstorming and conversation and innovation and psychological mm -hmm. safety. And, and I'm wondering if using that phrase is subtle or maybe explicit way to try to shut it down, <laughs> right? Where if you want everyone putting their cards on the table to help us come up with the best thing, if you throw that card on the table, it's kind of like everyone else take your cards off almost as <laughs> yes. could be what someone means by it. Yeah. Um, and yeah. So, I mean, you talked about appropriate practice and I think this is always a struggle um, cause I feel like there's kind of a paradox in the industry that it's, you, you want to give people good options of like, you know, Hey, here is a way, but I'm not saying this is the only way. And even when I'm careful, sometimes I'll talk to someone and they're like, I'm still hearing you as saying, this is the only way to do it. And I'm like, no, 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 that's not what I'm saying. <laughs> Are yes. there any ways you kind of set the context when you're talking with people or whatever to kind of make it clear that you're just sharing a practice that works in a context or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I'm probably, I'm probably not very good at, uh, you know, but I do, I have been given a, a conference talk for a few years now, um, which, which goes, goes to a few of the agile, um, uh, I'm not sure whether they actually sell them as best practice, but things like the invest acronym um, or the structure of a, of a user story statement, you know, all these things 
have been, you know, they get repeated over and over again in agile books and on blog posts and there'll be five minute TikTok videos about them and what have you. But, but the, in reality, they're applicable in some situations, but actually there's some confusion in them. The people misunderstand, for instance, what valuable means or even um, small. So uh, what I've been saying is that really all of these pieces of advice mm -hmm. should really be structured in a pattern format, you know, so I'm talking here about Christopher, Christopher Alexander pattern format, going through um, Gang of Four, et cetera, where you, you talk about the context or the forces in which that this pattern is applicable. And then not only do you start, not only do you limit yourself to say, this is, we have seen this work in these contexts, but then you go on to say, and the resulting context will have these constraints or the, these are the things that you might expect once you follow this practice. So a pattern structure is a really powerful way of doing it. Like I said, I'm not sure I, I always catch any advice or any statement I make in that format, but that's what I'm looking for. And that's what I encourage teams to look for. Some, some expert that has, is sufficiently, um, enlightened is the wrong word, but sufficiently aware of the, the, the broad, set a context that a piece of advice might be taken in so that they couch every piece of advice in a, well, these are the contexts that I've seen it work in and these are the result, the results of applying it. And you might have to, you might have to do something to cope with these, these um, resulting forces as well. Yeah, nice. Nice. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right. If you, like you, if you add, you know, you have your advice statement, if you add, if context, so-and-so, advice and then i think there's something really winsome about stating your own the cons of the advice you just gave too right you know what i mean it's you want to be honest right so you want to tell them that too but i also think it it shows that you're offering your advice not blindly or wildly or just saying slogans it's like you're aware that with people and engineering things there's always pros and cons there's no <laughs> uh, there's always going to if you optimize for this, you're not optimizing for these things over here, right? And so, um, so I guess it, it depends what matters most to you and that kind of thing. And I think that gives, it's kind of the opposite of saying best practice, right? Because it gives the here kind of liberty and a kind of implicit autonomy to be like, I want those pros or I don't want those cons, right? Or that is or is not my context, you know? Mm -hmm. And so, as opposed to do it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean- the, the slight difficulty is that actually people don't want to be given choices. <laughs> you know, generally they want to be told, this is what you've got to do. And I know because I've done this everywhere. So you go to the doctor and if the doctor said to you, well, you know, I, I think you should take this medicine, but you know, it's got all these side effects and uh, you know, some, the last person I gave it to died, you know, it was terrible. You know, this is, you know, this is not sort of advice you want, right? You want to go, Hey, this is the miracle cure. And that's why the, the medicine man used to come into town with his patent medicine was all, always very popular because you didn't have to go for a diagnosis. There weren't lots and lots of tests and didn't try things. You just said, this is going to work. And it generally didn't. Mm, yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's funny. Cause, uh, uh, me and my wife have talked about that before. Like, you know, what, what kind of doctor do we want? Cause we've had doctors that actually do that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they like brainstorm with you, you know, and, and, and I think in some situations that works really well, you know, mm -hmm. um, to make, give an obvious example, a five-year-old who can't understand and will just get scared, you know, mm -hmm. that's probably not the situation to do that. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think that's true. I'm trying to remember what book it was. Uh, I think it was thinking, I always botched the title, Thinking Fast and Slow. Yeah. Yeah. And that book, it talked about how the market is looking for gurus with hard and fast answers for everything or something like that. And so um, how to how to be marketable without uh, overselling, I guess, is a difficult thing. <laughs> yeah, it's tricky because... Um... Yeah. Because, yeah, people do want the expert that can sort their problem. You come and say, hmm, well, you know, make, maybe 70% chance I'll sort your problem. They might go looking for someone who says, I can do it 100%. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and, and at that's... times they want somebody just to blame, right? So. 
that's always good as well yeah so i mean i don't know how if this is in any way related but i'm going to tell a wee story about um some i I knew that uh, qualified as a general practitioner you know a doctor in in the uk Uh, and he was he was working on a an island out west in scotland um and he basically decided that homeopathy was really what he was into none of this none of this proper medicine well, proper none of this modern medicine <laughs> pharmaceuticals so uh when when someone came to him with a problem he you know he didn't really know that much about homeopathy i don't think because what he used to do he used a a, a, a pendulum on a s- string and he wow. had a piece of paper with all the different homeopathic preparations on it and he just used the string pendulum to divine which preparation it was that, <laughs> that, that he should give and i said well you're on a wee island have you got all those preparations um on the island with you he said no 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 um so if if uh, i divine a preparation uh that i am not supposed to use well uh, or that i don't have rather uh, what i do is i write the name of the preparation on a piece of paper and I take some distilled water and I stand it on top of the name overnight. And then I use that. And uh, he said it had really, he got really good results. So maybe, you know, maybe going back, maybe there are best practices. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe maybe as long as you just don't know that's what's going on behind the scenes, then. then Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, So, I mean, so what what are we talking about here? We're talking about a placebo effect, aren't we? Mm -hmm. So, bring in an expert and that'll make everything better just because we've got an expert in the room. Sometimes uh, I guess it works. Yeah. Yeah. And I remember from that, that uh, same book, it was talking about how some highly paid gurus, their advice had the same results as random advice, you know, or something. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so that's kind of like the illustration you gave. So yeah. Yep. yeah. Is it when you're in such a VUCA world, that's so dynamic, you know, that, yeah, they can't can't be known in advance. Yeah, that's tough. So uh, maybe that's so. So is this good yeah. good place to pivot? So is is the best practice fallacy a reason for dispassionate professionalism, or <laughs> you want to jump into the topic? Yeah, um, I'm not sure that there's. I've never really thought about them at the same time, but I have thought about them both yeah. a fair amount. I mean, I I give a lightning talk, or have been giving a lightning talk for maybe seven or eight years um called are you passionate um i'm sure i can find your link so that you can yeah. add it to the show notes um basically i recall maybe 15 20 years ago when i was a contractor i was beginning to see job adverts that were looking for uh, passionate professionalism as a passionate software developer or a passionate front end engineer and so i was saying you know that's not what i that's not Passion didn't mean that when I was growing up, right? Passion was, you know, maybe on one level, the passion of Christ. Another was passion for um, someone that you love very much, like your family or your lover. And I didn't want that sort of thing at, at work, right? And <laughs> uh, and so I I just riffed on it. So, I mean, it's, it's a fun, lightning talk. I don't really mind if people talk about being passionate because I know actually what they mean. They, they mean that they're engaged, that they're keen, that they're excited yeah. about something. But I wonder if that's passion or whether we've just devalued the word passion. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's a good, that's a good point. That's a good point that it can. And, uh, yeah. What's that? Is it kind of like a semantic diffusion of the original meaning? Right. Right. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, I find myself doing that same thing. You even, uh, I thought, I almost thought that you put that as a topic because we asked that when you sign up to be on the show, uh, you know, what are some topics you're passionate about? <laughs> and I'm like, I, I'm like, oh, we just set them up to talk about uh, being dispassionate. But I think when I like when we use it in that kind of sense, it's like what you said, like keen. And now after reading the grit book, I almost feel like it translates to grit more than anything else, is, is, I guess, is what I'm really trying to say. Grit? Sorry. Oh, yeah. yeah. Angela Duckworth grit is the the idea of persevering through adversity or or you know difficulty like learning a learning a new language or uh, learning an instrument or you know multi you know a new programming language that is maybe more esoteric like being gritty about something i think is just this idea of like continuing on right yeah Um, yeah and and i think so 
And I guess I use the word ambiguously. So like for the show, for example, having someone who's excited about a topic is a great conversation. Yeah. But when you hire someone, if someone's really excited about front end development or whatever, or XP, but they, uh, you know, don't know how to do it or something, you know, it becomes less important. So I guess in, in like a job format, I guess probably the word I'm really looking for is grit or something yeah. like that. Someone who has principles and practices and habits or something that mm -hmm. will stand through perseverance or something uh, through. I should resistance. change it on the signup form. Just, what are you gritty about? Well, <laughs> yeah. Although I'm not sure they're the same though. Yeah. So yeah. Grit is, is like you said, dogged and perseverance and yeah. Because because now that you've explained it, I know exactly what you mean. Like yeah. true grit in the movie, exactly that yeah. that sort of thing. You're going to keep going. But here we're talking about: Are you engaged? You know, do you have some enthusiasm about it? Enthusiasm, but, yeah. but so so passion though, it, it, I think it's a, a fur, fur, further out on the spectrum. It's a sort of thing. A passionate person is someone who, if you if they propose an, an architecture, for instance, and somebody questions them, they might get upset. And they might shout at people or think that they're being they're they're being somehow dissed. Where it's like, no, don't invest in these things. This is this is you you come up with an idea. Other people have got different ideas. We want you to be engaged and keen to discuss. Whereas I think passion can sometimes be all-consuming. Yeah. Mm. I see what you mean. Yeah. So kind of like uh <sighs> Midsummer's night dream passion where the <laughs> right, yeah where once once they have it once they have the passion they have they're like they're stuck to that person right there it's, yes. it's unreflective all-consuming yeah definitely that's that's not what we mean yeah no <laughs> so I think you're but, right yeah. I, I know that's not what you mean but that's yeah. so that's what I what I think of and in fact in the lightning talk what I did was I took uh, I then went and found a job description for a hospital consultant and I replaced it um, you know, and I, I began to use the word passionate in there, you know, replace some of the words with passionate. And it didn't sound right at all. You don't want a passionate doctor, right? You know, <laughs> if you go to the bed, bedside manner, that's, that's exactly the wrong thing. You want someone who's clinical. You want someone who's yeah. calm. You want someone who's dispassionate, who's going to tell you, this is what you need to do. Um, or at least these, these are the things that are going to happen to you if you uh, continue smoking, for instance. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I'm, um... I'm pretty well, happy with this passionate. I'll have to uh, stop sleeping next to my C sharp uh, syntax book because I'm just so <laughs> passionate about it. <laughs> really excellent. <laughs> I I actually once read um, there was a book about uh, so Microsoft re uh, released a, a managed C plus um, plus. I'm not sure if it's still extant, whether it still exists, mm. but I I read that book three or four times because it just it felt like properly esoteric. It was yeah. it it was the sort of thing where you probably did have to sacrifice chickens and run run around to make everything work. I never managed to get a job in it. I never actually ever saw an environment where they were using it, but it did sound like really quite quite you know a technical step too far to try and get something to work in a management oh, yeah. way. Yeah. 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 Nice. And so while you were just talking, I actually looked up the word and it says a strong emotion that's intractable or barely controllable. And it's so funny. Yeah. I've never, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Like if you, if you put that in, in the way that it's like, no, we don't want you to be out of control <laughs> or intractable. Yeah. Like, yeah. We want to be able to talk to you and come yeah. to us consensus i'm i'm passionate about microservices architecture right it's like okay now now no one can reason with you <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh okay. i see i see okay and that does well, happen doesn't it you know people yeah. find a solution like that it's it's the old story about it uh, for a man um or or a woman with a hammer everything looks like a nail yeah and yeah. so your microservices expert will maybe uh, suggest microservices whether or not they're appropriate. Yeah. Yeah. One one kind of follow-up question on that is now that I like see the the uh the kind of barely controllable aspect of the meaning, and now I get why you say uh dispassionate professionalism, but it almost like if I don't if I don't think about it carefully, I wonder if it almost reads as people who don't care. Like, you know, like a dispassionate doctor sounds to me like someone who doesn't care about me. 
and it's just following the protocol for my good or not just trying to get the job done so the patient's out in five minutes and he completes his ticket you know and so ah, i'm trying to wonder if there's a if there's a phrase to not make it sound like people don't care <laughs> you know what are your thoughts there yeah, yeah i i don't i don't know is the honest answer i yeah. don't i for me dispassionate doesn't mean you don't care okay but it means that uh you're not going you're not going to go off like a tinderbox if someone says are you sure <laughs> right um, yes it's not the same as disinterested either you know okay um and i only use it to have i only put it on my profile basically so that i can start this sort of conversation and go right passion isn't what you want you want people to engage keen enthusiastic dedicated there's a you know the english language is absolutely rammed full of exactly the words that you want why do we have to use passion i'd love to know who first started using passionate <laughs> in in this sort of um depleted sense yeah yeah that's good i uh, i think i think what i like um it you know so so i think passion being passionate about your habits can be good right like so so i'm going to exercise every day and i'm passionate about exercising or something versus um passionate about the type of exercise i'm passionate about sit-ups and so i only do sit-ups and i have really weak arms and like a really strong core and like you know <laughs> and so um i almost think that uh that passion is is kind of just like a subset of of it or or you know if you zoom out it's like maybe I'm passionate about programming. That's something I want to spend my time doing on, but I'm not, I don't want to be passionate about any particular language where, uh, you know, um, but then even then, if something displaces programming one day, then do you want to be truly passionate about it? Um, so yeah. you might be, you might zoom out even farther. Like maybe it's a scoping thing. I'm passionate about problem solving and I get to do that in software. And so, um, so I'm, I'm kind of reminded of the word uh, ikigai. It's like the Japanese word that's it actually has an English definition now as well. Um, but it's it's like what you love, what the world needs, uh, what you can be paid for and what you're good at all align. And so the Venn oh, diagram yeah. intersects. Um, and so so I, I feel like you're, you're kind of talking about the concept of ikigai in, in, in that um, in, in that and dispassionate pre professionalism, I think. You can be professional and you can like what you do and be passionate about the aspects of your work, but you're, you're dispassionately professional, being dispassionately professional, I think you're saying is a good thing because, because passion means, uh, you know, not being, not being flexible and not lo looking at the re reality um, objectively. Right. And so, yeah, it, yeah. It's like objective professionalism might be another way to put oh, it. Oh yeah. Objective, objective would be good too. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but the thing is that it would, that wouldn't, uh, start any conversations because yeah, everyone, yeah. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and the reality is none of us are really objective, are we? Yeah. So, I mean, we're all biased and have our, you know, have, have our own take on things. Yeah. But no, I, I get it. No. Um, yeah. Objectivity would be a good one. Yeah. And, and uh, yeah, like the yeah, objectivity in, I think what you're saying, Chris, reminded me of um, in the Atomic Habit books, it talks about being careful with where you put your identity. So like mm. if your identity is a business owner and then you retire, then you're depressed, right? Because yeah. <laughs> that's who you are, right? And so, um, yeah. And so you're right. If your passion can be a very good thing, but it has to be about something almost uh immovable or like <laughs> something that's always good right um or else passionate about the wrong thing could be very detrimental um but yeah yeah you're right okay so going back to the kinephrine framework yeah you don't want to be passionate about a best practice or a quote-unquote best practice <laughs> no exactly <laughs> they feel related right <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't and actually going back to kinephrine framework I'd like to say you shouldn't be passionate about the Kinevin framework yeah. because there's an awful lot of that going on as well. We're sort of segueing from a Kinevin framework to Wardley mapping, you know, but there's, there's definitely people, people nail their, their colors to a particular thing. And both of these, both the Kinevin and Wardley maps, they're really useful things, but um, they appear to be 
far more omnipresent uh, by looking at the blogs and listening to the conference talks than actually when you get out into industry and see what people are doing. Uh, um, I, I find that... the best practices or are they just good in some contexts? I nice. find introducing Kinevin framework or worldly mapping, uh, I, all of a sudden, it, it, I think the beauty of the two frameworks is that people all of a sudden realize that like, oh, I'm I'm being a little bit unreasonable about how I'm talking about this thing, right? Um, I, I love worldly mapping for um, just like, oh, we're going to custom build this software. And it's like, and, and the moment you say like, that's already a commodity, like people like lose it <laughs> almost. And so um, I, I think that, uh, yeah, I, I think we don't see acknowledgement of, of both of those things um, because it's so, it's so attractive to ignore it um, and, and, and really dig in and, and, uh, you know, sunken cost fallacy and all that stuff too. So tell me more, what, what do you think is attractive about ignoring um, for instance, Kneven and Wardley mapping. Uh, well, so so I um, my guess is is that people like stability. So Kneven is like the acknowledgement of of instability, or or the, the acknowledgement that there's some things that you cannot master, right? Um, and people, I think, just in general, don't like um, acknowledging that. And I think that there's kind of this trap where you know if you were never taught about the Kneven framework. And I think it's very easy to um, it's very easy to just ignore the signs that it's there, and uh, until you know someone you know someone uh, is so frustrated that people are behaving in su such a way that they have to outline something like that. Um, and wordly mapping, I think you see it all the time with sunk cost fallacy and uh, and other things. It's like something was innovative and became a commodity, and then uh, and and as it's been commoditized, it's like, oh, you know, it get, kind of gets into that space of like, oh, well, we didn't write it here. So, you know, we we don't use that. And so, um, you know, I, I think I th I've especially seen it when something has become a commodity when it was when it wasn't before. Um, there's a lot of uh, uncertainty and instability. Um, and so I, but I, yeah, I just think it's attractive because um, they, you know, it's convenient to ignore them until things get really bad. Um, and do you think yeah. that sometimes the passion with which um, uh, Wardley mappers and Knevin practitioners uh, embrace their practices is also a bit of a turn off? I mean, I, I remember that uh, Liz Keel uh, was doing some sort of get to the sort of uh, thinkings I guess um, maybe five six years ago in London and Matt took along a colleague of his to one of these and the colleague came out at the end of the day he was just totally frustrated and he said Kevin it's just two bums kissing <laughs> <laughs> I will never be able to unsee that image uh, yeah yeah <laughs> the, uh, yeah no uh, so so I think I don't know. Most times when I've seen Kinevin or Wordly Mapping introduced into a context, I feel like it's someone realizing that something they were hoping for is now gone or or like, you know, destroyed in some way. And so uh, I feel like when when you're in that conversation, you almost have to be prepared to you know, it, it, it's as if you're going into a conversation uh, with a friend and you're saying like, I'm about to disappoint you, but this is what I'm going to tell you. Great. But we don't do that in business. We're just like, let's put it all on a wordly map. And then everybody has to deal with their internal trauma about their worldview being shifted so hard. Um, and so, uh, so I don't know. I, there's, there's something in my mind, kind of in the back of my mind that says that, uh, that Kinevin and Wordly Maps have to be uh, introduced with a great deal of empathy. Uh, otherwise, um, you know, especially because I think I think they're extraordinarily useful when talking cross-functionally. And mm -hmm. uh, but cross-functionally is the 
the uh, number one place where you're, you're most likely to destroy uh, like friendships or relationships, you know, well wor working relationships that are, you know, so, so dispassionate professionalism, like if the person on the other side of the table is passionate and you show them a worldly map and call what they've been doing a commodity, um, then, then it, like, it, it's, in, it's kind of insulting. Right. Yeah. Well, so, so is it insulting or yeah. is it just something that they will take it's, insult to from yeah yeah, yeah. They, they would take insult to and that's that's why we value psychological safety and yeah. radical candor right is because if we if we if it is unsafe to give people critical feedback you know or if they will take it personally um then you're at, at an extraordinary risk to uh bring dysfunction to the team so so um yeah maybe, maybe that's the way to put it is the kinevin framework and worldly maps you may want to introduce them only after you've established a uh, a precedent of psychological safety in among the team um and yeah. uh but but often I, I i see them most used to to be like hey look like you're in this quadrant of kinevin and but we're actually working in this quadrant of <laughs> it's like okay well um so you come out of that with uh you know yeah. maybe damage to the relationship or something that point yeah. i mean uh whenever you're engaged with a group of people or even a single individual you're in a i mean whether you think about it or not you're in some sort of coaching relationship yeah there's a, there's going to be a power of gradient and uh, you need to be mindful of the impact of your words uh, I think the book helping uh, is especially good. Uh, it talks about like a consulting relationship and and also uh, um, yeah, it, it was a fantastic book for just the relationship of like the the person being helped and the helper. And uh, it has this kind of notation of one up, one down um, and uh, and the relationship in like if you're being helped, uh, then there's a need for balance and it talks talks about our relationship with doctors consultants friends who are giving us advice so um, anybody mm -hmm. that's struggling in this area i would recommend that book um right nice i had i had one thought on what yeah, i thought you asked a great question seb on uh what's so attractive about fast universal answers and i think i think it's basically kind of what chris said with the uh establishing psychological safety first because that's foundational and it almost reminds me of like the kind of classic Socrates quote, the unexamined life is not worth living. And I think um, if you have the habit of like, here's where I'm at now, I think TDD and XP is great for these contexts and it has these pros and cons, but I'm open to be persuaded out of that, right? And so, but if you're so passionate that that is never the case, you can't even critically examine it and receive feedback from it. Um, you're in a place where... Um, the critical assumptions can't be questioned. And so you're just kind of looking for, give me the quick answer to this problem, you know? And I think, I remember the Thinking Fast and Slow book said that too, that unless you go into, I can never get it right, system one or system two, the one that's like slows down and does that critical life kind of thinking, it strongly prefers a very quick answer. And if you don't give it one, it'll make up one, even if it's not you know, the question you're asking. <laughs> and so, um, and so I feel like maybe someone who's like locked into, we're not in critical examination mode where we're questioning our assumptions and give me a quick answer so I can get moving again. You know what I mean? Yeah. They, they are not in a place to hear kinephrine or any, any of these things that question all the assumptions. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's a really good, um, exercise i got it from lauren bosovit but i think he got it from somewhere else and uh and kevlin henny uses it as well it's and it's a wonderful one in workshops or at conference talks and you ask um you ask 10 new questions that have numerical answers right but they're not numerical answers that anybody in the room is gonna ha know what they are so the such as how many iso standard shipping containers are there in the world okay something like that um, or how many de million deciliters of wine did France produce in 1987? You know, these sort of <laughs> questions. And you, you tell people that what they have to do, they have to respond with an upper and lower bound within which the answer 
should fall with a 90% probability. Okay, so that's the, that's all you got to do, right? So there are lots of strategies where you could achieve that 90% success rate. Um, however, almost everybody who plays this game, even when they try and put a range in that is not precise, is way too precise, right? They Their precision completely outstrip their their desire precision before precision completely outstrips their ability to have confidence and so the average you know and i've run this dozens of times with hundreds of people and the average number of answers that where they actually get out of 10 questions that they get within the range is two or three right <laughs> so they're getting to they're getting a confidence level of 20 or 30 percent which is nowhere near 90 whereas if you said somewhere between zero and 20 billion you would yeah. be right for you know all of them so yeah. you could do for nine of them zero and 20 billion and then go a bit more precise on them and then you'd be much closer than 90 percent. we don't like that we like certainty and as professionals when somebody asks us a question we we're used to or at least we assume that if we give too vague an answer, someone's going to say, no, no, I need more, more precision than that. Mm. And that, you know, we could start talking about estimates at this point, because like, <laughs> actually, you know, when it comes to estimating things, you got to give a big range, especially when you don't know what you're talking about, you know, right at the beginning of project. But if you said, well, it's going to be somewhere between two weeks and two years, um, th th people, you know, rightly folk would go, that's not very useful. It's like, yeah, but I don't have any information to give you anything better than that at the moment. Um, yeah. okay. And so it's a really good game. It's a really good, it's a really good practice. And it does demonstrate and has demonstrated to me and lots of people that we we feel being we feel like we're being pushed as professionals to be precise, even when we don't have the knowledge or the data to be precise. And we're not prepared, prepared then to go, look, I just don't know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so in the interest of time, let's hit the sustainability topic too before we <laughs> jump off here. Yeah, what do you want to talk about there? Well, I guess I want to talk about um, this year's Agile Alliance Conference, hmm. which was took place in Orlando and in Edinburgh in Scotland. Uh, and it was a really excellent experiment or initiative on the part of the Agile Alliance to try and provide um, a the um, the experience and the benefit of attending a really wonderful conference without having to travel many thousands of miles in jetliners uh, to sit in an air-conditioned biodome in a very hot state in the United States, right? <laughs> um, and you know this came from. It came from a panel that took place in Nashville last year yeah. at the Agile Alliance Conference, which was run by uh, Lisa Adkins. And she had four really great uh, uh, women talking about uh, their work in sustainable space. Uh, and I think, you know, we kind of don't, we don't talk about it very much in IT. Um, you know, we've got data centers that are churning out kilowatts of air conditioning. Uh, we've, We've got Zoom, but we still travel to go and see folk around the world. Yep. Um, there's lots of things that we could be doing. Um, and I think most of us, maybe I'm not, maybe this is culturally, I'm in my little echo chamber. I think most of us realize that probably the scientists aren't out to try and create a new world order by lying about um, <laughs> you know, industrial emissions of carbon and other greenhouse gases and that we really do have a challenge that's a global in scale and we just don't appear to be grasping it as a global challenge in a way that really feels like we ought to be if not for us but for our children and our children's children sure yeah yeah it, uh, it reminds me of um when the pandemic hit and we were doing remote mob programming uh, it caused me to read more closely one of the remote mob programming books called Remote Mob Programming. Uh, but one of their main bullets was save the planet. You know, daily commuting causes traffic jams, crowded trains, significant greenhouse gas emissions, uh, you know, consultants flying around. Uh, and so saying <laughs> with remote mob programming, you can do that stuff remotely. And so um, and so I, I uh, 
I'm not claiming to be a uh, sustainability uh, um, super practicer because mostly because I really like remote power programming and it's nice that it happens to be more sustainable. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, which is, which you know, is I mean, so this is certainly not me going, um, yeah. I'm not trying to point fingers at anybody. It's just yes. that there's so many things that we could make changes that are not deleterious, yeah. that bad they're not going to make anything any worse but they will make some things better i mean yeah. i believe that there's some math around you know how much carbon zoom actually produces so i mean i i don't i don't know where it sits <laughs> in the scale thing so but it's not it's not as simple as just do everything online but yeah. there's changes that we could we could enact and there are certainly um things that our organizations could do around workplaces and policies uh that can that could um ameliorate uh that the impacts of their business one hour of video conferencing or streaming emits 150 to 1000 grams of carbon dioxide that's as much as the equivalent of 11 percent of the emissions uh from a gallon of gasoline wow it also requires between one or two two to 12 liters of water very interesting. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> that was yeah, right. that was uh, I was quoting that from Fast Company. I don't know if that's yeah. How, how, uh, good that everything is. has an impact. Just yeah. we need to understand what and you know other some things Cloud are really computing and everything. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. The 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 uh, I think the likelihood that a Zoom call is solar energy is much higher <laughs> than driving around, right? Um, <laughs> But, uh, yeah, you know, I, I do, I think about this, you know, so, um, you know, a long time ago, I, we kind of say, you know, make it work, then make it right. And then only if there's a problem, make it fast. Um, but I, I think that there is, there is like a tangible, um, like carbon footprint element of, of processor processing optimization. Right. Um, and so, you know, I, I think, you know, at the very least, as software developers, uh, learning to reduce the uh, amount of processing happening does have a long-term energy impact, especially for large-scale systems, right? Um, so, so you know, I think for those for those that have been, you know, moving away from optimization since the C C plus plus kind of time, you know, time frame. Um, I, I think that there's a renewed focus on on optimizing algorithms from the perspective of uh, carbon footprint. So interesting, interesting, because C plus plus is is resurgent at the moment. Yeah, yeah. I go to the C plus plus conference most years down in in Oxford, and uh, back at the turn of the century, it was looking like. It, we we actually started doing other things at the conference like yeah. Agile and C Sharp just because we didn't think there was going to be enough C programmers around. And now I go to it and it's full of young people, really bright people, talk, yeah. getting very excited about new standards. So um, actually, that's to do with money, not to do with carbon, but nonetheless, yeah. yeah. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I, I think because also there's like Rust and Go and all that too. But, um, yeah, I just I just think that if you're if you're conscious about sustainability, optimizing your algorithms is one way to have like a, a daily habit around a software developer can have a daily habit around optimizing algorithms here and there. Um, and and in theory, you would you would produce less carbon over the long run. Um, Although yeah. an awful lot of optimizations aren't optimizations at all. Yes. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so be... I think we should we should restate the basic uh rule of optimization is don't and yeah. uh, then add the expert uh clause which is don't yet yeah. <laughs> and if you get to that point when you do need to do optimizations or you think it'll be good to save planet then please 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 measure it <laughs> yeah. you aren't making things worse yes exactly one quick thought and maybe you can get a soundbite on it uh said because i know chris is has to close this because of time but one thought I had was, is there synergy with lean and sustainability? So if you're removing unneeded steps in a process or whatever, does that, like, I, I think it came from the, one of the Wordly mapping videos, but like someone was buying machines to process paper 
because another company was printing it out when in the end of the day, they could have just sent the data to each other or whatever, you know? And so I wonder if there is a synergy between lean and sustainability in that way, but I'm not sure. <laughs> I, I think probably I've not okay. thought about it. What the one that I would always come back to again, I've already name checked it once, but I'll do it twice. Liz Keel has a wonderful thought experiment where whenever somebody suggests a process or a piece of software or something that needs to be improved, she immediately starts by saying, um, if you had an infinite number of pixies, how would you do it? And so you imagine how you would do it and then uh, optimize in pixie land. And only once you've worked out that there's actually something that needs to be sold by software or yeah. document processing or driving to go and see um, see your, your, your consultant in another place, only then actually commit carbon to it. Although... To be clear, she wasn't talking about carbon there. She's just talking about let's not write software unless we absolutely need mm -hmm. to. Yeah. 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 I, I think it's probably a, a trade. It, it can be full of trade offs, right? So to go really fast, you can get into a jet and fly somewhere, but obviously it's going to have an impact on other things, right? And so um, you'll produce less carbon by driving something across you know, across the United States rather than flying it, but flying it will produce more emissions. Um, so I think lean, lean could go either way, uh, unfortunately, um, ah, just because, okay. because the cost, it depends on what you're optimizing with lean because lean does, you know, it says optimize one thing possibly at the expense of another. Mm, okay. Thanks. Okay. Uh, so, uh, Seb, is there anything that you would like to plug or share before we close out the show? Um, so we didn't talk about BDD, but myself and Gashburn Nodge have written, um, are writing a, a book, series of books called, uh, the BDD book series, which you can find at bddbooks.com. Um, and I'd also like to plug the Socrates series of unconferences, which I believe mainly happen in Europe, uh, but there's that Socrates there. Not so much to do with the, the unexamined life that you were talking about earlier, Austin. <laughs> but it stands for a software craft and test. Um, and these conferences are residential um, and they happen uh, generally Friday through Sunday and are really brilliant. So go check out Socrates conferences and come along to one of them. Awesome. We'll, uh, we'll put links in the show notes. And uh, to all of our listeners and viewers, um, if you uh, if you know somebody that's a little bit too passionate about what they do, um, or maybe uh, have a Rolodex of best practices in their back pocket, um, or maybe they're just uh, you know uh, wasting a bunch of resources and and acting unsustainably, uh, then maybe you'd want to share this episode with them. And uh, you know for yourself, please like and subscribe and ring that notification bell. And we'll uh, see you all next time. Thank you, Seb, for joining us. And to our viewers, bye. Bye-bye. See you.